0: If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. We've actually almost finished 2 Corinthians. Some people have asked, what's next? Uh, I think we're going to start the Gospel of John. And in the Old Testament, I believe we'll start Deuteronomy. Um, Still praying about both of those books, but 2 Corinthians, of course, has been a wonderful and a a blessed letter to study. We see the heart of Paul in what was a difficult, a very difficult situation. Um, If you turn to the very beginning, just to kind of walk you through uh, the flow of the letter before we um, go through the text for today. In chapter 1, verse 8, we see that Paul was so utterly burdened beyond strength that he despaired of life. He felt he had a sentence of death. That's the weight of the disruption caused by the false teachers on the soul of Paul himself. He said it was for a good purpose. It served to make him rely not on himself, but on God. So he has... Grief over the rebellion in the church and the false teachers that were there. And yet he has great confidence as well. He says that in chapter 2, verse 14, that God is to be thanked because Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. In chapter 4, he mentions that all that He does is just an open statement of the truth. And by this he would commend himself to everyone's conscience. He says in verse 7 that all of the brokenness and the hardship have caused him to be um, more effective, not less effective. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says he has this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to him even though he's afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. He doesn't lose heart. He calls these light and momentary afflictions. And then it's in chapter 10 where he begins to specifically address the false teachers. Uh, Again, this is unique, uh, a unique letter because Paul is so transparent. I mean, he's always honest but he's transparent about the struggles he faces uh, in bringing this church back to orthodoxy and away from the false teachers. So I'll be reading in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 11. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? In verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored? For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less, but granting that I myself did not burden you. I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may... I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are humbled to have your word, to have the revelation of yourself to us. And yet we acknowledge that our hearts often are hard. Our eyes often are blinded, our ears often are stopped, and we need your help. We come to you again as those who would need the Holy Spirit to understand any spiritual truth. So help us, we pray. Help me to speak wisely and accurately the Word of God, and we pray that you would help us to hear it, embrace it, obey it, and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The old Princeton theologian, 19th century Charles Hodge, wrote, When we are really weak in ourselves and are conscious conscience of that weakness, we are in the state suited to manifest God's power. When we are emptied of ourselves, we are filled with God. Those who think they can change their own hearts, atone for their own sins, subdue the power of evil in their own souls, or in the souls of others who feel able to sustain themselves under affliction, God leaves to their own resources. But when they feel and acknowledge their weakness, He imparts divine strength to them. Paul has been defending himself, he defends himself very hesitantly, and now we see that he is calling himself a fool. Foolish because of his boasting. All through his defense, he talks about this boasting that he's doing as foolishness. He's humbling himself. He's showing his own weakness before the church, his weakness and his, his affliction. In the last chapter he or in the last uh, sermon, he, we saw that he talked about this great revelation that was given him. he was able to see heaven. And yet he says it was all foolishness. The boasting is foolishness. And now he feels that he has become a fool. He says, I have been a fool. Indeed, he is a fool for Christ, as we all should be in the world's eyes. Well, the first thing he tells them is that he was a fool because they forced him into it. In other words, the gospel was at stake. And he had to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the one who brought the gospel to this church. If they destroy him, they're also destroying the gospel. They didn't have the New Testament. Of course, they had the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel is seen there as well. But the revelation of Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel, is revealed in the writings of Paul himself. And he would not let his own character to be destroyed by these false teachers. When the gospel for this church would be at stake. So he says, You forced me to it. How? Because you should have commended my work. You should have received my work. You should have stood up for me and defended me when these false teachers began spouting all of their false claims about him and about his doctrine. But he hates boasting. But he's going to stand up against these quote-unquote super apostles himself. How did he do that? Well, we saw he he talked about the extent of all of his sufferings. And you can imagine that the super apostles uh, who in Corinth, in the big city of Corinth, it would be like the New York City where everything is, is big and bang and powerful and looks good and everyone wants to look good and sound good and show off their wealth. This is Corinth. And Paul did not come in that way. Rather, he came suffering for the church. And it's doubtful that the false teachers would ever suffer anything for the church. But he also showed that God had given him great gifts. He had been saved by Christ personally on the road to Damascus. And God had actually taken him to heaven and shown him heaven. And yet all of this boasting frustrates him. And he feels like he's been a fool they should have defended and supported his ministry rather than listening to these false teachers who were actually, he said in chapters 10 and 11, workers of Satan disguised as Christians. And yet they listened to these workers of Satan rather than listening to God. What did he want them to look at? The fruit and the history of his ministry in life. The fruit of his ministry was clear. Sacrifice and love... And truth. The false apostles ministry was also clear. Discord and destruction which they were seeing presently in their church. And Paul says I'm nothing in myself. I'm nothing. His calling by Jesus is validated in the fruit of his ministry. And he knows that everything is from God. That's why he says based on the fact that everything comes from God. He considers himself Nothing. In other words, there's great humility there. He's coming at them in the gentleness and the meekness of Jesus Christ. Although the false teachers are anything but gentle or meek. This is how he approaches them. And he says you should have commended him. You should have defended him. Although he's the most unworthy of God's grace. So all the excess of his ministry is God's work. None was due to him. All glory be to God. This really is the way that every gospel minister views all the work in the church. If you truly are placed there by the hand of God, you know that it's God's work. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, my body, The minister's body, Paul's body, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. His boasting is all in God, and it's in his own weakness. God's power to salvation, God's work in his church, God's commissioning of Paul as a shepherd, God's protection of his body and the spiritual growth of the church, all the fruit of the ministry is due to God. And they should have taken time to notice and defended Paul and commended Paul rather than listening to the destructive words of the false teachers. Another reason why they should have defended Paul, we see in verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, he says, with the utmost patience. Signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, all through the scriptures, when you see signs and wonders and mighty works, there's a reason that they're happening. It's a a new epoch in in God's plan of redemption, a new work or revelation. And they establish the authority of the prophet or the apostle who performed them. And they mark their words as from God himself. And there have always been signs and wonders And in Deuteronomy 13, we learn that signs and wonders were even performed by false apostles, false prophets. Deuteronomy 13, Moses says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder, and he tells you that it comes to pass, so the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This person was to be taken out and killed. So there are signs and wonders even performed by false prophets. You should never see something, if you ever do see something supernatural, you should not assume that this is from God. You should look at the life of the person. So it seems that in this church, the false teachers may have performed signs and wonders as well, although they were performed by the power of Satan. Now we are, we are under firm conviction that no one has these miraculous giftings any longer. None of us are gifted with a gift of miracles or a gift of healing. But reading through the scriptures, maybe without a historical lens, you might think that miracles were always being performed by all of God's people. And that's not the case. We see often hundreds and thousands of years between those who are performing miracles and signs and wonders as you go through the scriptures. I'm just going to mention the most prominent Moses performed signs and wonders. Then there are seemingly no miracle workers, no, no prophets doing this for 400 years until Elijah and Elisha show up. And then there's a long gap after Elijah and Elisha. 900 years until Jesus and the apostles. And then another long gap until probably Christ returns. Even in the book of Acts, you can see the miracles kind of slowing down as you read Acts. Acts. In the first third of the book, it's filled with miracles. And then as Paul begins to take the ministry to other parts of the world, and everyone begins to be evangelized in that part of the world, the purpose of the miracles is fulfilled. We see even in Acts that the miracles begin to taper off. Why is that? Because God doesn't love his church and doesn't want to bless us with good things like someone with a gift of healing. No, the purpose of the miracle, the purpose of the gift of healing, the purpose of the gift of of wonders or miracles or prophecies or whatever, the miraculous giftings, had the purpose of establishing the word of God and the church. So the apostles were given these gifts. It validated their message and their authority. So Paul had come to this church and actually performed signs and wonders and miracles. And he says, you should have seen this, and you should have seen it as a validation of my doctrine and defended me. But they were blind, just like the miracles of Christ. They should have been so obvious to everyone. Your Messiah is here. God had not even spoken through a prophet for 400 years, much less performed any miracles through any prophet. And yet they still rejected Christ. So Paul was not alone in that rejection. He says miracles and signs and wonders. It's describing the same thing for emphasis. He says these things should have caused you to pause when you heard the false teachers. And think of the apostles. Think of Paul. These are normal, humble men broken by God, living lives like Christ, probably in great poverty often, Christ-like men who were personally given by the Holy Spirit wonderful giftings, miraculous giftings, such as has not been seen since. They could heal people with a word. A shadow could pass over someone who's sick and they could rise. They could raise the dead with a touch they could even pronounce death and people died they could command demons they could cause people to become blind these were truly miracles and yet people still doubted by way of application I would say that today I think most of you would probably agree no one walks around healing and performing miracles no one has A specific gift of healing or a specific gift of miracles in the biblical sense. These miraculous giftings seem to have ceased. We know this from the scriptures. We know this just from observation. Can God still answer prayers in miraculous ways? Absolutely. There's no greater miracle than a change of heart. Than the regeneration of your soul. God can do anything. We're not reformed deists. We don't believe that uh, since Christ came, God just wound up the clock and he stepped back and he just watches and he hears our prayers and he helps everything as well. No, God actually still intervenes in our culture, intervenes in our universe. And to say that no one appears to have the gift of healing is not the same as saying that God doesn't miraculously heal whenever he desires to do so. That's why we pray for people to be healed. Yeah, we want medicines and doctors to work. We want God, the great physician, to do his work as well. To say that we no longer speak to demons and command them to obey us is not the same as saying that God doesn't, by his miraculous intervention, protect us from demonic powers. This has been the historic belief of the church. And we need to know that just because these giftings are missing, it doesn't mean our God is not still with his people in miraculous ways. We pray. In that effect. So, when you pray for salvation, is that not a miracle? It's the greatest miracle of all. You remember when the paralytic was laid down before Christ? He did the most important thing first, which was, Son, your sins are forgiven. The greatest miracle came first, and only then did he heal him in his body. I think it's fascinating today, too, that those who claim the most amazing spiritual, miraculous healing gifts in our culture. Benny Hinn, Todd Bentley, Kenneth Copeland. These are some of the richest Christians in America. And they're charlatans, every one of them. Not one can give a single example of a person who had a real disease or a crippling ailment who was immediately and directly healed by a gift of healing that they claim to have. I think CNN has actually done studies on this, taken people who have been claimed to have been healed. I think it was a Benny Hinn expose. None of them could be validated. These are incredibly rich men. They pretend to speak for God, and mostly they financially profit from this deceit. There's nothing apostolic about them. And this is the exact kind of person that Paul seems to be railing against. These people bring such destruction to the church, such confusion. And I would imagine they would have difficulty enduring any of the trials or hardships for the gospel that Paul experienced. They live in great luxury, and they seem to be all about money. If you want to study this further, I I would recommend two books to you, Charismatic Chaos and Strange Fire, both excellent. Uh, Both in the doctrine of the miraculous gifts, but also in just exposing the falsity of many, most, all of these gifts today. And one of the points that John MacArthur makes in these books is, if God actually were to give these miraculous healing gifts to people on earth today, would he really give these most precious gifts to the most immoral swindlers in the world, living for their own pleasure? I don't think so. So Paul is coming against people just like this in the church, these false apostles who may have performed miracles. And he said, hey, these are all false. I actually performed miracles that are validating my message. I'm boasting. I get it. I'm a fool for Christ. But the suffering, the fruit of my ministry, the miracles themselves, point to the validation of the ministry. And it's all about my love for you. That's the third thing I want to point out is that Paul reiterates his unending love for this church, even to the point of death. So many pastors today, you read about the the life expectancy of a pastor in any church is somewhere between four and six years. And then he's gone. What often happens, he's just attacked and he's attacked and he's attacked. I don't feel that here, by the way. But he's attacked and he's attacked and he's attacked. And eventually he just says, it's just too much. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to start again. Paul felt burdened to the point of death. And he stayed with this church. He stayed with these people. What unselfish love he showed them. In verse 13 he said, In what were you less favored than any of the rest of the churches? He started many churches. Except for the fact that I myself did not burden you. In other words, he wouldn't take any pay from this church. He refused to be a burden to take their pay. It's a new church. It's a startup church. He didn't want to take any pay from them. And the false teachers were using this as an accusation. If he were the real deal, he would take money from you. He would take pay for all that he's done. Because you get what you pay for. You can imagine the argument that they might have used. He's coming to you for free. He's probably not worth anything at all. So this was their their accusation against Paul and he says this is actually something you're holding against me that I'm not charging you for my service. I'm coming to you in love. I'm coming to you as a father to a child. And he says I'm still not going to take your money, verse 14, and I don't want your money, I want your heart. That's what every pastor wants is the heart of his congregation to be owned by Christ. And that's why in verse 15 he kind of he epitomizes kind of the attitude of every true pastor or elder. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Think about that phrase. I will spend all that I have and be spent myself in my life for your souls. Paul's happy to do this. This is the attitude of every Pastor. He also emphasizes again his integrity. He says, I didn't use any deceit in verse 16. I wasn't crafty at all. This has been a recurring theme of this letter. In chapter 4, he says, I renounce the disgraceful, secret, underhanded, shameful ways. Probably talking to the false teachers. He says, I don't use deception or practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, I commend myself to you. Paul isn't coming to them with flowery language and and wonderful arguments. He's coming to them in the power of God. And he's plainly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ in him crucified. Repentance and faith. This was the message of Paul. Just the gospel. And his love was a selfless love. The church that had so afflicted him, he loves them. And he would continue to spend and be spent for them. Someone told me recently that he doesn't trust skinny chefs. I get it. Or fat preachers. And I get it. I would also add wealthy preachers. Certainly God can raise up a fat or wealthy preacher. Um, But the point is that there should be some... Overall focus on Christ that changes everything about a person's life. And all that would cause that person to indulge is given to Christ. It's not just preachers, of course. It's all of us that are called to that kind of focus on God. An all-empowering and all-consuming focus on Christ. Because as the shepherd of the church is broken by God, as your pastor is broken and grows in faith... He increasingly despises the trappings of this world. Not grows to love them, but actually despises them. I've told you before, if you pray for me, it's not give him health and wealth. It's break that man and humble him before God. I want to be that broken vessel. So turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's the prayer of Paul. That's my prayer as well. And it should be yours. And this is the work of God on every true preacher and on the heart of every true Christian. Why? Why why does Paul act differently than the false teachers? Why is he so unselfish with his time and his money? Why is he so unselfish? Why is he so persistent? In pursuing this church. He tells us in verse 19. It's because he serves in the sight of God. Coram Deo. Before the face of God. Arsus Sproul said the big idea of the Christian life is Coram Deo. What does he mean? when we all understand that we live life before the face of God, as Paul understood, as all of us should understand, then everything changes. You begin to think about things before you do them. You even begin to think about your thoughts that you're thinking. That's called our sanctification. He begins to show you your sin, your need of a Savior. He begins to show you His holiness. And through that lens, you see your own repugnance. He says, it's in the sight of God that I've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, my beloved. I've not been defending myself, he says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along we've been defending ourselves to you? He's doing two things here. First, he's showing his motives were completely unselfish, which he's been saying over and over. This is all done in love. This letter is written in love. And I don't want anything from you but your hearts to be turned to Christ. But secondly, he's showing that he's not accountable to them. You think I've been defending myself against you? I live and work in the sight of God, is what Paul says. I'm not accountable to you. I'm the king's man. I work for God alone. Indeed, all pastors, all elders are king's men. All deacons and evangelists are king's men. They work for God. The church that Paul's writing to wasn't the jury to determine whether he was guilty or innocent. My Gen Z children taught me a new phrase recently. They said, Paul's just spitting facts, Dad. Spitting facts. That's all he does. He, he, He tells the truth. They shouldn't misunderstand. He's speaking the truth before the face of God in Christ. And it doesn't get more plain than that. And all who serve God in any official capacity are slaves to a heavenly master. That's their only boss, the king of heaven. Certainly all Christians can carry this principle through and should. But what this does to Paul is what it does to every pastor. It makes pastors humble, but it also gives them a certain boldness. They're humble in that they know they work for the Almighty God, but they're bold because they know that they work for the Almighty God. It reminded me, um, when I worked at the headquarters of Air Combat Command, the Air Force is divided into like six major commands. The chain of command goes from the president to the chiefs of staff, chief of staff of the Air Force, and then really down to these combatant commanders who own, and not own, but who, who run gigantic organizations. Uh, these are are four-star generals. They're the highest rank. They're old guys, uh, often combat veterans. They've been there and they've done that. And they're sharp. Almost all of them are extremely sharp leaders. So the secretary to a four-star general is often a low-ranking person. And in government speak, it's like a GS-8 or 9. Um maybe at the most a GS-10. This is like a lower-ranking government employee or a newer government employee. But you know what? When I was working at Air Combat Command, when the secretary called my phone, I picked it up because she represented the four-star, and I was not going to miss that call. When she made a recommendation, hey, Colonel Steele, you might think about this. I did it. I did it. I respected that woman. Certainly I would be kind to her no matter what, but based on who she represented, I was going to listen. And everyone was always very nice to her. Not because she was wonderfully proficient, although she was. Not because she was beautiful, although she was a beautiful woman. Not because of anything else except that she worked For the man. And she was bold. She kind of owned her position well because of her boss. We all listened. In the same way, you need to remember that when you're listening to the preached word of God, although it comes through a man you know and a man you know to be humble and trying to be humble, a man who's very weak before your eyes, any preacher represents Almighty God. Paul was saying this as well. I represented the Almighty God. I'm not defending myself to you. Everything I said was in light of God before Christ. And it also is, he he pivots to kind of a, in verse 20, he's basically telling them as he's finishing this letter that he's still a bit nervous. He's still a bit afraid that everything he's done which still might not be heeded. There are some sins that destroy churches. All sins are somewhat destructive, but some are destructive in a powerful way. And he's addressing these things once again. He says in verse 20, I fear that when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish. Meaning, if I come and there's been no repentance... I'm going to transition to discipline, and you're not going to like it. It's going to grieve him, it's going to mourn him, but he's not going to let the church be destroyed. He's afraid that he might find them still quarreling and jealousy, living in jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. In the vice list, he goes on a few verses later, speaking of impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality. Paul had the best interests of the church at heart. He was unselfish and loving, but he was also going to fight for the purity of that church. And he was going to correct those who were still stuck in the sin that he'd mentioned. He was patient and he was kind. But when he came, they might not like who showed up if he didn't see repentance. If they're still following these false teachers. Now you might remember in chapters 2 or 3 when Paul said that Titus came and brought him back a really good report. So it would seem that although a vast majority of the church had, had embraced Paul again and welcomed his doctrine and rejected the false teachers, there was a minority that probably still opposed him. And he's addressing those people here. They're still stirring up trouble. And it only takes one or two people to trouble the entire flock. He said already, these false teachers were servants of Satan, dressed as servants of light. And if they're still there and they're still unrepentant, he's going to deal with them. He's going to bring discipline. For the upbuilding of the church. He talks about, really, the fruit of these false teachers in, in these terms. This is the fruit of the false teachers' ministry. And it's all related to pride, this whole vice list if you will, is related to the pride of false teachers and the things that they brought to the church, to the body. Quarreling, first of all. Quarreling. If you look at the very end of the letter, Paul he won't stop talking to them about their quarreling. And he tells them in verse 11 of chapter 13, in his kind of last sentences, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. You see, he's trying to make this church value the unity of the body. And certainly there are things important things to be disagreed about but we can all agree that the Word of God is our final authority. We can all agree that the glory of God is more important than any of our personal peculiarities. And then he finishes with a a wonderful benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He wants this church to love each other, but he's hoping that they have left behind the quarreling if you've ever been part of a church where there's just intense quarreling, you know how destructive it is. Like, we feel great peace here. We're brothers and sisters. We love each other. So you can hear the word of God without much distraction when there's quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Satan wins. In that church. You're not hearing God's word. All the results of pride and bitterness. Keep you from even having your prayers heard by God. The scriptures tell us. Embracing pride as a rejection of Christ. And it was a problem then. And it's a problem in every age. Even in the time of Moses. And yet Satan allows. Or God allows Satan To bring these people into a church for their own growth and for God's glory. We should not be surprised if such people were to come to Meadow Creek. And yet we should take Paul's advice. Aim for restoration and comfort one another and agree with one another and rejoice and live in peace. How much trouble would be avoided if those brothers and sisters in Corinth had showed grace to each other. If they had in humility considered others of more importance than themselves, would there be any quarreling or jealousy or anger or hostility or disorder or conceit? Or if the brothers and sisters were quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, would there be any slander or gossip, which are always destructive to a relationship and especially a church? James tells us that we should watch out for our tongues. Many of you probably grew up like I did, being told, unless you can't say anything kind or true or necessary, then just keep your mouth closed. I wish I were able to do that more frequently. But just as serious and destructive to a church as sexual sin, and he brings that up as well. impurity and sexual immorality of this church has been addressed in first corinthians and now in second corinthians people that have never confessed or repented bring trouble to the body and i'm just going to close by mentioning this there are some things that our denomination faces today related to sexual sin we all need to understand what the scriptures teach about homosexuality and i'm sure next in the next couple years the the sin of transgenderism, and all of this is going to come up as well. So, everyone in our denomination would seem to agree that homosexuality is wrong. Everyone agrees on that point. But it's more subtle, the the error that's being introduced into this denomination. And it's something that 20 years ago even, it would have been rejected outright. Really, for the whole history of the church, it would have been rejected. So it must be something in culture that's changed rather than a new understanding of God's word that's accurate. But what they're saying now is that you can be gay and just stay celibate. And I'm telling you all this because it's coming up and it's actually gone mainstream. It's national. This is a new argument. The idea that God made them gay. And that being gay and single, actually as long as you're celibate, and you're fighting this sin. It's a blessing to the church. So the church should welcome gay Christians. Often they don't say gay Christians or homosexual Christians. They'll use the word same-sex attracted Christians to soften the blow to our ears. But it's the idea that it's cruel and unkind to tell gay people to repent of their identity. They can repent of their sin, but not their identity. That's, that's the way God made me. He made me a same-sex attracted person and now I'm a Christian and I'm a same-sex attracted Christian. And I should be celebrated as a gift to the church. So this doctrine of homosexuality, this doctrine of sin is heretical. We shouldn't be, be kind of jumping around the issue. God doesn't make anyone permanently gay any more than he makes anyone permanently in any way sinful. Now, what God does permanently make is he permanently makes you a man or a woman when you're born. In the beginning, God made them male and female. There's two categories of personhood. There's not a third one, gay. It's not a separate category. We're all born sinners, and this is true. And some people may have proclivities to some sins. This is true. You know in your own life, if you're married, you know in your own marriage, your wife sins differently than you do. You're tempted differently than she is. We're all born sinners. But God has not made any special allowance for accepting gay sins. We're called to repudiate all of our sins and all sinful identities. Period. And it's not it's not possible to reject the sin and embrace the identity. We had a pastor in our denomination who did that. He embraced the identity. He said, "I'm a gay Christian." He since has left the denomination, but the issue still remains. And what's most offensive is, to me is that it denies the power of the Holy Spirit to change a person. To say, this is a sin that will never change. This is just who I am. That's egregious Doctrine. All true believers know that they have been changed over time. If you are in Christ, you know that God has changed you in various ways. Things you once loved, now you hate. Things you once did, now you don't do as much or don't do at all. We're progressively changed by the Holy Spirit. This is called sanctification. It's the expectation of every Christian. And to deny that, the way some of these, these people argue, it's repulsive. It's repulsive. And Paul says those who refuse to repent, he's going to come in a way that they will not expect, in a way that might surprise them. Today we need to be bold and strong. When the world comes at you and tells you, you have to accept this lifestyle, you have to accept this, this is just how God made them. You need to know the word of God says, no, that is not the truth. There are many, many, many people who are Christians now who were once gay. Just like there are many people who are, Christian, who are Christians now who are once drunks or drug addicts or liars or prideful. We don't make allowances for sinful activities or identities. These things are destructive to the church. Our denomination is seeing this sermon. Acted out before our eyes. It's caused great destruction. And it's not more loving to tell a gay person, oh, you can be an active member in our church. Just, just don't live with another man. But I, I get it. You're gay. That's who you are. That's not loving. The most loving thing we can do is tell them the truth from God's word. Yes, you have to be sensitive and kind. And yes, you want to embrace them and they're struggling in a way that's, that's life-shattering. But the most loving thing we can do is tell them the truth from God's word. So in light of God's face shining upon us, in light of the fact that we all live before the face of God, Paul calls the church to repent. This is the call of every church to repent. I'm calling on each one of you today. Ask if there's sin in your life now and then repent. Brother, sister, repent. In the next chapter, Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. One way you know that is that the sin you loved at one time in your life, now you hate it. You've been able to repent, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to run with perseverance and to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Paul's first and foremost desire, though, was for a healthy, Christ-centered church filled with people who loved Jesus. He mourned for the unrepentant in the church. It's not with any great joy that we look at people struggling with homosexuality or any other sin. It's, it's, it's It's a mourning in our hearts. And it's a desire for them to live before the face of God. It's all of our desires. And if we do not... There will be destruction in this church as well. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the goodness that we have because of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us that shines light upon truth. Help us to be faithful. Help us to proclaim your truth. I pray that this church would be equipped to counter the culture that would make sin acceptable and make righteousness seem ungodly. Lord, that you would give us all wisdom and compassion with those who are, who are wracked in sin and struggling in the most serious ways. Bless this word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.